Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. My name is Vian, for those of you who don't know me. Uh, I'm the pastor here. This morning I said one of the pastors, so I don't know if you know, there's a, someone applying for a job or whatever the case might be, or there's someone silently sitting with a desire and a word from God to come into the ministry. But if you do, then come join me. Then I'm again one of the pastors and not the pastor here. But it's nice to be here tonight and it's a privilege for me to share the word of God with you. Marius Liesel, date night. Okay. Um, but before I joke too much, let me pray for us and then we can dive into tonight's sermon. Yes, Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness. And thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for godly community, Father. Um, something, Lord, that we many times take for granted, Lord. Just think it's, it's the way it is everywhere, Lord, and it's not so. And we thank you, Lord, for the people sitting around us, Lord, praying for us, encouraging us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for those in the morning service, Lord, doing the same. Thank you, Lord, that we do not have to go through life alone. You are always with us, Lord, and also those, Father, who you will come back for one day. Your body, Lord, the church, every believer, Father. And thank you, Lord, that everywhere in the world, Father, even as we are sending Andrew now, Lord, family is waiting on the other side. And you might not know them yet, Father, but we all know you. And that is what binds us together. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you, Father, for your perfect will. Thank you, Jesus, for your perfect example. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence. In Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of our sermon tonight is The Gospel-Shaped Life. The Gospel-Shaped Life. Colossians 1, from verse 1 to 14 that we're going to go through. So we're going to work through the book of Colossians for the next couple of months, really looking forward to it. It's quite a practical book, but I have to warn us from the beginning that it's also a very confronting book because it's so practical. In the beginning, there's kind of what we would call Christianese terms used to express certain things, faith, hope, love, all of those things that we see in the Christian life and what we are called to exhibit and to grow in. But then it does something uncomfortable. It defines what those things mean. What it looks like when we actually love. What it looks like when we're actually full of faith. When it, what it looks like when we actually carry the hope of those that have encountered the gospel. A beautiful book. And one of the things that it kind of states from the beginning, and we're going to look at that in this first couple of verses, the foundational verses of the book, explaining what should happen when we encounter the truths in the rest of the book. And finally coming to the last part where it gets very practical about how the gospel shapes our lives. And one of the interesting things it says that what we believe will shape our lives like we've seen many times in many passages of scripture over the last couple of years. What we believe shapes our lives. And the statement that it makes in the beginning as well, if we truly believe the true gospel, it will shape our lives. It will shape our lives. Not maybe, not it can, not sometimes it does. But when we truly believe the true gospel, our lives are shaped by it. And not only a part of our lives, but every area of life. 
As we'll see now, the gospel shapes our lives. And then it goes on in the rest of chapter 1 to explain who Jesus is. Beautiful passage of scripture. And it explains the gospel. It warns against false teaching. And then it explains how the life of someone shaped by the gospel should look like in all areas of life. How the Christian looks in fellowship. Beautiful picture in chapter 3 of what the church is and how people relate to one another when they understand the gospel. And then it gives the picture of the Christian home. Our husband and a wife looks like that understand the gospel. How children look like that understand the gospel. How parents look like that understand the gospel. And then it goes on to explain how someone in the workplace looks like when they understand the gospel. Employer and employee. This is how it looks like. And then also the Christian in the world. Very practical. Looking forward to work through that. But like I said today, just to focus on the foundational aspects of it. So let's read together in this first chapter to see what is formed in us and then how it is formed in us. Colossians 1 from verse 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossia, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, a beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we've heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled of the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to the glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Beautiful passage of scripture, some filled with big words that needs a lot of explaining many times. And there's a lot of stuff that we can say and pause at, but to just look at what is formed in us and how it is formed in us. And beautiful to start off with, yeah, at the end, verse 13 and 14, that kind of gives us a summary of the gospel. There's a kind of a lot of short snippets and summaries of the gospel in scripture, but this is one of them, a very beautiful one. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Summary of the gospel. And one thing just to note from the get-go, that this is not good advice 
This isn't someone coming to say, hey, we have good advice. If you follow these four things and you really persist in them, you'll eventually get to God. This is not that. This isn't advice so that man can get closer to God. This is good news. This is something that has been done. And we need to receive the good news. It's not advice. It's good news. Amen? And we kind of need to understand the full picture here. And one of the things explained here is also the problem that we have as human beings. Remember we said there's four aspects of the gospel. If we have to understand it right. Problem. That's what we have as human beings. In every area of life that's what we bring to the table. We have a problem. And then through Jesus, who he is and what he has done, that's the solution, the gospel solution in all areas of life. Then there's a response which the Spirit enables in us. The Holy Spirit gives us the power and the ability to respond to the good news of the gospel. We can't just look at it, we can't just do nothing. Something needs to happen. Repentance, forgiveness, Confession, all of those things the Holy Spirit enables inside of us as we respond to the message of the gospel. And that produces an effect. And the effect is the will of the Father. That we again sound, look, smell like the Father wants us to. Amen. Problem, solution, response and effect. And many times because we do not understand the problem, we then do not believe and see the gospel as we should. And it doesn't affect our lives as we should. When we truly believe the true gospel, it shapes our lives. And to understand the true gospel, we have to understand the true problem. And you see, in the West, we wouldn't sum up the gospel like this. We don't normally start by saying, hey, we've been delivered from the domain of darkness. The domain, excusia, authority, power of darkness. We just say, hey, Jesus came and he has forgiven our sins and we can enter into the kingdom of heaven now. And if people say, okay, but if we can enter the kingdom of heaven now, where were we? Then we're kind of like no man's land. We weren't in Zimbabwe, we weren't in South Africa, we were at Bitebridge, in the middle. We didn't really belong to one or the other. And that's not true, according to scripture. Ephesians 2 Verse 1 to 3, we read exactly the same. The threefold problem that we have as human beings. For you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Dead in sin, led by the devil, destined for God's wrath. Serious problem. And we kind of get dead in sin. We get the destiny for God's wrath. But led by the devil, that's going a little bit too far. Isn't it? Not according to scripture. That's the problem that we have. We were under the authority and power of the evil one. And what does that mean? It means that in every area of life, we thought, desired, and lived according to that world. And every area of life was affected by it. And even when we did the right things, we did them for the wrong reasons. Are you with me? We have to acknowledge that. 
That is what scripture says. We thought, we desired, and we did, as people of those kingdoms did. And the moment we got transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, we started to think and desire and do as people of that kingdom does in every area of life. And you see, many times the gospel, not the true gospel then, doesn't affect every area of life because we don't believe we have a problem in every area of life. We believe when it comes to our jobs, our worth ethic, the way we view our wives and children and the way we go about our careers, that's kind of good. But we just have this one problem in our spiritual life. And if Jesus can just come and fix that one area, then we'll be okay. But scripture says, no, it's total transformation. The gospel shapes all of your life. There's a statement I can't remember who said it. It says, Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Don't know if you've heard that before. Jesus is either Lord of all, of every area of your life, or he's not Lord at all, of no area of your life. It's total submission. It's a completely different change that takes place. You see, the gospel doesn't only change the future destination of us. It changes the present reality of us. It changes our being now. Not only where we are going, but who we are now. It's changed by the gospel. And the scripture sums up this change here. And it explains how this summary of it takes place in every area of life in later chapters. But let's quickly see what it produces. And then let's look at how it is produced. Verse 4 to 5. Since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Faith, hope, and love. The three main Christian virtues that's associated with Christianity. Faith, hope, and love. Now these three remain, and the greatest of these, love. You've heard it before. Faith, hope, and love. And the one thing that I want us to see here is two words. The word and in verse 4 and the word because in verse 5. So and links parallel statements together, meaning these things go together. And because gives the inference, this is why this is happening. Meaning that these three things are inseparable. If you have the one, you'll have the other. Faith in Jesus and a love for the saints. And also the hope laid up for us in heaven. That's what our faith is based upon, on this hope that Jesus will come back for us. Faith in what He's done. Faith, hope in what He will do. While we love His people. A faithful God, as we grow in a love for God, seeing what He's done for us, leads inevitably to a, a love for His people. In John 21, when Peter sees Jesus, after He's betrayed Him, and Jesus gathers them again after His resurrection, they have breakfast on the beach, beautiful picture. And three times... Jesus asks Peter if he loves him. And what is the response? Yes, Lord, I love you. And what does Jesus say? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. Tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed my sheep. A love for God, inseparable for love for his people. 
this will inevitably be part of our lives if we truly believe the true gospel. And then later along in verse 11, but we'll look at that in just a while, as endurance and maturity also grows in the Christian life, along comes joy, as we endure with all patience and joy. Joy comes into the Christian life. And what I need to ask us tonight is that if we take a look at ourselves, if we ask the people around us to summarize us, like, like what defines us, if you want to give a definition of me, what would it be? Would we be classified and defined as people that are full of faith, full of love, full of hope, and full of joy? Would that be the definition of who you are? Full of faith, full of love, full of hope, full of joy. And to really answer that for you, answer that for yourself, is that true of your life? Doesn't need to be always, but mostly. Is that mostly true of your life? Hope, faith, love, joy. I kind of wanted to take pictures of faces and put them on the board. To kind of see, okay, let's see if we can spot the hopeful face and the not so hopeful face. We'll be able to see that, right? And every now and again when you catch a glimpse of yourself in the mirror, do you think to yourself, wow, look at that hopeful guy. Well, he must have heard some good news. Surely he believes that he's been transferred from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. Surely he knows that one day Jesus is coming back for him and has went to prepare a place for him. It looks like he knows that. The face of a young boy that dad said, today we're going to go watch the rugby together and he's getting up out of bed, man, you can just see on his face. There's joy and there's hope. Because I know with who I'm going to do what today. Are you with me? Do you understand that? That lets me think about the story of the church in Stellenbosch. It says there was a guy that used to play the bass guitar. And the whole band, you know, you could see they're enjoying worship and they're praising the God. But this guy always looked so serious while he's busy standing there with the bass. And one day the pastor walks to him and he says to him, Listen, I just want to know, do you enjoy doing this? And he says, Yes, man, I love it. And he says, Well, tell that to your face. Send it to your face. Because your face doesn't realize that you're enjoying it. Because it doesn't look that way. But is that true of us? Do we look like people that understand that? Full of love, full of hope, full of joy. And remember your answer because later the book is going to explain what that means. Like I said, it's a very confrontational book this. Because many times we like to keep it at the airy-fairy level. Let's just keep to this hope and love and joy thing and we'll define it ourselves. What that means and what that looks like. Because if scripture defines it, I might be confronted with the fact that's maybe not the reality of my life. So this is what it produces. Inevitably, it's what it will produce. And like I said, we'll get later to what it specifically means. But let's look at how 
it is produced. The rest of verse 5 and 6. Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. So the one thing that we note is that the gospel needs to be heard and understood. A couple of things to note. That's the first one. The gospel needs to be heard and understood. The second thing that we should note here is that when we hear and understand the gospel, it immediately produces change. It immediately produces change. See, it says here, bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard and understood the grace of God and truth. It's an immediate thing. It's an immediate thing that happened. Since the day you've heard, it started to increase and bear fruit in your life. A change happened. Like, like the one guy said, dead people coming alive again. And I think dead people know when they come alive again. A dead person comes alive and he's like, yeah, this is a little bit different from where I just were. Are you with me? And the question is, have we experienced that? Have you experienced the Holy Spirit coming to give the new spiritual birth? Like Jesus said to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Have you experienced that? It's not a perfect change, but it's a change nonetheless. Something changed, something happened. And maybe also just to come and correct some misconceptions that this is not when you wrote your name on a card at church. They gave cards and said, okay, you, you write your name here, the date here, you sign there, then you know when you got saved. No, no, no. If you did that, nothing changed. Then you just wrote your name on a card. That's the only thing that happened. Or maybe somewhere a sermon was given and the pastor said, raise your hand. And he said, okay, for those who raised your hands, you pray after me. And you prayed after the words that were being said. And you might have done that, but if there was no change, then nothing happened. You just prayed after some person. And even if you did none of those things, but the word of God was ministered and it produced something in your life, then this happened. Are you with me? It doesn't always need to be this thing that the charismatic church many times makes it out to be. But have you been confronted with the gospel and has that brought change in your life? Have that happened? Coming alive to the things of God. And then thirdly, it continues to shape our life. Look at those words. It is bearing fruit and increasing. It's the continuous tense. This is something that starts immediately but it continues. It doesn't cease to do this. And Paul says here, as indeed in the whole world, meaning that everywhere this happens this way, Everywhere the true gospel is truly believed, it immediately starts to bear fruit and increases and it continues to bear fruit and increase. It always happens this way. Just so that some people might think, okay, but maybe we are experiencing kind of spiritual load shedding and we just have to wait for a couple of hours and then this thing will kick into motion. No. It immediately brings change. And it continues to bring change. It's like a cycle of grace. We're going to get to that in just a moment, what that means. 
but it continues to increase. It always does this. All over the world it works this way. And now to ask us again the question, is this true of our lives? Has the gospel brought change in our lives? And not only in a area, but in every area. And again, not perfection, but change nonetheless. For all who are in Christ are new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 And what I love about that verse is it says, Behold, the new has come. Look, see, something has changed. The old has gone away. Not perfect, but a change nonetheless. And is it increasing? Is it increasing? Bearing fruit and increasing. Because if you truly believe the true gospel... It's what will happen. And like I said, we'll get to the specifics later on. But is this true of our lives? And if it is true, how do we make sure it remains true? And if it isn't true, what will we do about this? To hear and understand. I don't know if you've ever read the Bible and just thought to yourself, man, this sounds nice and all, but I have no idea what's going on here. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Like it's, it's beautiful words and it, it sounds poetic and it sounds nice and everything, but if I ask the question, so what? I need to stand up and do something now. I don't know what to do. It just sounds nice. It sounds very encouraging. I maybe post it on Facebook later, but I don't know what this means really. And for some of us, that might be the entire Bible. Nowhere does anything make sense. And for some of us it might be certain pieces of the Bible. which doesn't make a lot of sense. So when will it make sense? What is needed for us to hear and understand? Whether it's the word, word preached or the word read. How are we going to understand this? And many times we have the misconception in today's age that we need somebody that's very good in explaining the word of God and then we will understand. And in a way that's true, but not a person. And yes, God has given certain people the ability to break open scripture a little bit easier, a bit more practical, a bit more contextual than certain people, but that's not the key thing here. And what's so beautiful about the church in Colossia is that it wasn't an apostle that preached the gospel to them. It was Epaphras, just one of them. Look at what it says in verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And that word minister doesn't mean minister like we think it means today. Many times when you say you are a minister of Christ or minister of the church, it means that you are employed by the church. Minister just means servant. Epaphras is a faithful servant of Christ. And he tend to one went to Ephesians when Paul was busy doing his missionary journey there, planting the church there. And he got saved there as he heard the gospel. And he went back to his hometown and preached the gospel to them. And the church in Colossia was founded. By someone hearing the gospel, going back home and proclaiming the gospel that he heard. Beautiful. And it says there, he's a faithful minister of Christ. And the reason I believe the scripture says that he's a faithful minister of Christ because he did two things. He was faithful to the word, but dependent upon the Spirit. He was faithful 
to the word and dependent upon the spirit. Why do I say that? Because we read it in chapter 4, verse 12. Look at how beautiful this is. Small group leaders, pay attention to this verse. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you might stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Isn't that beautiful? Always struggling, always wrestling on your behalf in prayer. That is what it means to be faithful to the word, but dependent upon the Spirit. Epaphras knew that he's going to share the information of the gospel, but the Spirit needs to bring the revelation of the gospel. And the same is true for us. And many times I think the reason why we have such a lack of evangelistic effort and such a lack of evangelistic results is because we do not do it this way. Specifically in the West. What do we depend on? What do we have faith in? Our ability to reason well. And someone at work said something or you engage in this debate and man you watched a couple of YouTube videos and you've read a couple of more books and now you're ready. And John better beware because tomorrow you're going to show him how wrong he is. And not only is it dependent upon reason, but it's not loving at all. And the desire is not to win someone to Christ, it's just to show him that you are smarter. That is not evangelism. But evangelism that is dependent upon God is soaked in prayer. To pray before, to prepare the soil, to pray afterwards, to water the seed. Soaked in prayer. Epaphras knew this. He understood this. That God needs to come and save. He'll be faithful to the word. But he needs to be dependent. Upon the spirit. There's a beautiful hymn that was written in the 1800s. Called Brethren we have made to worship. And it says Brethren we have made to worship. To adore the Lord our God. Brothers pray with all your power. As we try to preach the word. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. Brothers, pray with all your might as we try to preach the Word. Because all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. And then later it says, Sisters, won't you come and help us? Because Moses' sister aided him. Won't you help the trembling mourners who are struggling hard with sin? Not so beautiful. How do we help those struggling hard with sin? To tell them to stop, to tell them to try harder? Now the hymn goes on to say, tell them about the Savior. Tell them that he will be found. Preach to them the gospel. And then it says, sisters, pray. And a holy manner will be showered all around. Provision will come from heaven. Be faithful to the word, but be dependent upon the Spirit. Pray with all your power as we try to preach the word. Tell them about the Savior, but Pray. That God would come and give provision from above. And we see this everywhere in scripture. Ephesians 1, that's kind of a mirror image of Colossians. Paul also writes to them from verse 12. He says, since the day we've heard of what? Of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, we haven't ceased to pray for you. And we pray that God may grant you the spirit of wisdom and revelation of him. That the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened that you might understand the hope to which you have been called. We pray that the Spirit might be given so that you can understand who God is and what He has done and what He expects of us. That is what we pray for you for. 
In chapter 3, from verse 14, the same thing in Ephesians. For this reason I bow my knee, Paul says, before the Father, according to whom every family on heaven and on earth is named, that he might grant you, according to the glorious riches, to be strengthened through his Spirit in your inner being, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love with all of the saints, may have the strength to comprehend the love of Christ, to be filled with the fullness of God. Not for material success, not for provision, not for earthly things. This is what we pray for. We send you the word, but we are dependent upon the Spirit to reveal the word to you. In the book of Timothy, he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, and he says, this is a truthful and faithful statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And then in chapter 2, how does it begin? First of all then, because of what I've just said, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, first of all then, what must happen? Let prayer, supplication and intercession be made for all people. Pray. That's what needs to happen. And as they prayed for the people to receive the revelation, we also pray for ourselves to receive the revelation. In 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, it's a verse used out of context many times. It says that no ear has heard, no eye has seen what God has prepared for those who love him. Meaning that we'll only see one day in heaven. What does verse 10 say? These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the deep things of God. Nobody knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of a man. Nobody, nobody knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of God, that we might freely know the things given us by God. And the words that we teach, we do not impart to natural men, but spiritual. To those who are spiritual, for they are spiritually discerned. The natural man does not understand them, he doesn't receive them, they are fully unto him because they are spiritually discerned. We have received the Spirit that we might freely know the things given us by God. And as we read the Word of God and we don't understand, we run to YouTube or to a book instead of saying, Lord, you've sent us the Spirit. Come and open our eyes to read and to pray. They asked C.H. Spurgeon, what is more important, reading the Bible or praying? To which he responded, which is more important, breathing in or breathing out? If you do any one without doing the other, you will die. We need to do both. And look at this, Paul does exactly the same. Says in the same thing from verse 9 to 10. And so from the day we've heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding that is given by the Spirit. The Afrikaans say, Marie, wijsheid en sig wat die geest gee. Wisdom and understanding that the Spirit supplies. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Exactly the same thing. We are sending you the word, but we are dependent upon the spirit to reveal those words to you. You need spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding to know the will of God. There's this beautiful song 
by the Ohio called The Truth in a Cave. And then at the end of the song it says, And the truth became a tool that I held in my hand. I would yield it but not understand. And how many times do we see that today? People that have the truth of scripture but they do not understand it and so they yield it but they cause more harm than they do good. And it brings division instead of reconciling. Because we don't understand it as we should. Like the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. Using it to oppress and to divide. Instead of to give life and unify. Because we don't understand the words that we read. It's like any from Shofar Joburg says, the discipleship sweet spot. When people grow. It's when the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God, sit under the Word of God. That's when we grow. And the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God, sit under the Word of God. That's why we have church, that's why we have small groups. That's, by the way, also why we have intercession and sermons. That's why we pray before the service, that's why we pray on a Monday. To be faithful to the Word, but to be dependent upon the Spirit. And some of us might realize now, now it actually makes sense why I understand so little of Scripture. Because the Holy Spirit given, when the Spirit of truth comes, who will lead you into all truth. That's what Jesus said. It's better for me to go away. Because if I do not go, the Spirit will not come. And when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. In John 14, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit, Alos Parakletos in the Greek, another helper. Another one just like me to come and help you. So Jesus says, you need help. And what do we say? No, thank you many times. It's to come alongside so that he can help us. So to pray before we listen to a sermon. To pray after we've listened to a sermon. To pray before we read. To pray after we've read. So that the Spirit can come and guide us. And again, what does it produce? It produced a life shaped by the gospel. Verse 10. So when you have the knowledge of his will through the spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to, meaning for this reason, so that this can take place, is what Paul is saying, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. How do we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord that's fully pleasing unto him? Lord, how do we please you? If Jesus were to give us a summary statement what would that be? People came to Jesus and said, Lord, what is the most important commandment? What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with everything in you and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the exact same thing that Paul just said in the beginning. Since we've heard about your faith in Christ, your love for the saints and the hope and the promise of God. Faith, hope and love, it's the exact same thing. As we grow in the knowledge and the will of God, it leads to a life that conforms to what God has called us to. In every area of life, and like I said, we'll define how that looks like in the rest of the book. We'll define how that looks like in church. Beautiful picture. In the house, in the workplace, in the world. Shaped by the gospel. But it's the exact same thing. But then interestingly enough, it ends off with and increasing in the knowledge of God. Isn't that weird? And in the English the word order is a bit different from the Greek. 
It says bearing fruit in every good work and increasing. Now in the Greek it just says in every good work bearing fruit and increasing. The same as it said the gospel does. When you've heard the gospel it bore fruit and it increased. And it leads to this knowledge of God. Now to sum it up in kind of plain English it sounds weird. It's kind of a, a Dagwood burger here. And it's a bit confusing if we don't understand this last part correctly. So Paul's basically saying so we heard that you understood something about God and therefore it transformed your life. So we are praying for you so that you can understand something about God, so that it can transform your life, so that you can understand something about God. You're like, what? Isn't this knowledge of God what started this whole thing in the first place? How is it at the end now? And what Paul is trying to say is that when we get a revelation of who God is, what He has done, and what He expects of us through the message of the Gospel, and that shapes our lives, and it leads to obedience. Through obedience, we will get to know God, that we can get to know Him in no other way. Through obedience, we will get to know God in no other way. To sum it up, us up in a Plain example, some of us have heard that if you jump, God will catch you. Some of us know that if you jump, God will catch you. Why? Because some of us have jumped and God has caught us. Are you with me? Some have heard and some know. A revelation of who God is that only comes through obedience. And that's what produces the cycle of grace because as we obey, we understand something more clearly about who God is and what He has done for us. And because we have a more clear idea of who God is and what He has done for us, it leads to greater obedience. It produces a greater revelation. Not a different one. Hear me on that. Not a different one. But a greater one. To understand more deeply the message of the gospel, who Jesus is and what He has done. That leads to a greater obedience. That leads to a greater revelation. It's kind of like the humility cycle of grace. Where God says He gives more grace to the humble. What precedes more grace? What comes before more grace? Grace. Just grace. There needs to be grace for there to be more grace. Amen? And the initial grace is what made us humble. And because God's grace made us humble, He gives more grace. And more grace makes us more humble. That gives us more grace. And so it's a cycle of grace. The same as the knowledge of God is a cycle of grace. By the grace of God, we can understand who God is. And that conforms our life to a certain way of living. That gives us a greater revelation of who God is. That transforms our life to a certain way of living. That gives a greater revelation of who God is. Cycle of grace. Beautiful, isn't it? In summary, what should we do? We should pray, listen, pray and obey. When it comes to the word preached or the word read, pray to prepare the soil and then receive the seed of the word and then pray for the word and the seed to be watered so that it can bear what it's supposed to bear in our life. Allow the spirit of truth to guide you into all truth. It's why he came. You know, many times we kind of have this idea when Jesus comes to us with a certain thing and He says, hey, I brought you something and we go, no, we already have that. As if Jesus didn't know. If Jesus says He came to give you something, 
then you better understand you don't have that. And you need that. When Jesus says he comes to give life and life in abundance, we must acknowledge that we do not have life. If he says he came to give joy, it's because we don't have that. If he says he came to give hope, it's because we don't have that. And whatever gives us the false idea that we have that is a lie. Transferred from the domain of darkness, every area of life, to the kingdom of his beloved son. And to end off for us, with verse 11 and 12, speaking about Christian maturity, another one that gets a little bit touchy. Now explaining what should happen when we grow from that, as we mature as Christians, being strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, again God at work, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And Paul says, as this process continues and we are learning to endure patiently, we do so joyfully and thankfully. Do you want to examine your life to see whether you are not growing old as a Christian, but whether you are growing mature as a Christian? Then you look at this. Are you growing joyfully and thankfully? Or are you becoming critical and bitter? Is there joy and thankfulness in your life? Because that is Christian maturity. As the apostles, and, and I'm not speaking about many times, we get all kinds of weird ways about what we think persecution is. Let me just say it that way as well. We have no idea what true persecution really is. And we get critical and bitter so quick. And Paul says, no, if you mature as a Christian, and if you learn to obey patiently, you're supposed to grow in joy and thankfulness. The apostles, after Jesus ascended into heaven, as they started to minister, they received severe persecution. In Acts 4, we kind of get a snippet of it. As Peter and John are caught by the council of elders, and they are beaten and charged not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And what happens when they leave that place? We read that they rejoiced, because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. That's Christian maturity. Growing in joy and growing in thanksgiving. Thanking the Father and rejoicing in it because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Confronting. Are we growing mature as Christians? Is our life full of joy and thanksgiving? Why? Because he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It's based upon hope. Because of the hope. Paul wrote, because we understand where we are going. The present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed. Do you understand that? Have we heard about it only? Very confronting. And again I have to ask us as we end off. As Christians, are we full of faith? Are we full of love? Are we full of hope? And I'll be growing in joy and thanksgiving. And like I said, if we see that this is not the case, what do we do? We say, Lord, help. Lord Jesus, help. Holy Spirit, come and reveal to me the beauty of the gospel. 
It's not trying harder. It's trusting more in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's not advice. It is news to be received and news to be understood. And if you see you are growing in those areas, say, thank you, Lord, that the spirit of truth is guiding me into all truth. And I pray, Lord, that I would remain faithful to the word and dependent upon the spirit. Amen. Let's stand and pray together.